Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 32 to 45. I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 31 to pick up on a verse last week that I forgot to mention in the preaching. And it ties into both texts really well, so it's not a problem to read here. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible right in front of you in the chair. It's on page 716. It's important for you to follow along in the Bible just to know that what I'm saying here is actually from God's Word and not just human opinion. We don't have too much interest in human opinion apart from God's Word here on Sunday from the pulpit. So here's Mark chapter 10, verses 31 to 45. I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. But many who are first will be last and the last first. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left hand in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared for. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Verse 42. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. But it, not, it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Father, we thank you that your Son indeed did come, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. We thank you, Father, that you have come in the person of your Son, to save us from our sins. So help us this morning, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us for your namesake. Help us to feel afresh washing and cleansing in the blood and death of Jesus Christ for us. For our friends who are with us this morning, who have yet to trust in Christ, we pray that this morning they would see the beauty and majesty and power and greatness of your love demonstrated to us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. This only comes by your Spirit's power, so we ask that he would help us here and help the children as well to hear the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one great philosopher, one great, one great group of philosophers in the 1980s wrote these words. Welcome to your life. There's no turning back. Even while we sleep, we will find you acting on your best behavior. Turn your back on Mother Nature. Everybody wants to rule the world. It's my own desire. It's my own remorse. Help me to decide Help me make the most of freedom and of pleasure. Nothing ever lasts forever. Everybody wants to rule the world. And then at the end of the song it says, All for freedom and for pleasure. Nothing ever lasts forever. Everybody wants to rule the world. That's tears for fears, right? Were they right? Is that true? Is that song true or false? Well, if you've been around my teaching for some amount of time now, there's jokes about it now that my questions tend to be tricky. And sometimes they are, to provoke thought. There is something right in the song, and there's something wrong in that song. What's right in that song? Well, we are made in the image of God, and God is the king of the universe, right? God rules. And he made us in his image that we would reflect his rule in this world. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, or rule over it. Rule the world. We know that is right because when you read Revelation 21 and 22, it says that we will reign with Jesus. We will rule with Jesus forever and ever. Okay? So that's what's right. We're made in God's image to rule the world. What's wrong with the song? Now, there's a lot wrong with the song. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and every time we sin, we make a choice to not submit to God and not reflect God's rule in this world, but we make a decision to compete with God and push God off the throne so that we can be king. Isn't that what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden? Eat this fruit and you will be like God. God gets to decide his own things as the king of the universe. You get to push God aside and you get to be king of your own universe if you eat this fruit. Everybody wants to rule the world. Actually, that's the cause of human conflict in James chapter 4. James, the, the author of the book of James in the New Testament, he asks a very practical question. Where do fights, why do fights happen among humans? Why is there conflict among you? You know what his answer is? Your own desires. You want to rule the world. And when you want to rule the world, and someone steps on your rule, you get angry. Because you want to be king, or I want to be king. And if you step on my kingship, then you will feel my wrath. Because you're violating my kingdom. And everybody wants to rule the world, including me. So that's what's wrong with the song. Now, there was a rapper in the 90s as well, Nas, who wrote a song called If I Ruled the World. And he talks about freeing all his sons. But the, the thought there is, if I ruled the world, what would I do? If I ruled the world, what would I do? Because what I would do is... Whatever my answer to that question is, is my definition of what true greatness is. If I had all the power to rule the world, what would I do? So if you're not a Christian this morning, I wonder how you would define greatness. If you ruled the world, what would you do? What would your rule look like? How would you define true greatness? 
If you're a discontent Christian who's dominated by worrying and chasing other dreams that you could never catch, I wonder how you would define true greatness if you ruled the world. The problem is not that we want to rule the world. It's that we want to rule the world over against other humans who also want to rule the world. The problem is not that we want to rule the world. The problem is that we want to rule the world over against God who rules the world. And our rule is supposed to be a reflection and submission to his rule. That's the problem. Is that we want to rule the world in an anti-God way instead of the way Jesus defines it here according to truth and loving everyone around us. So here in this passage, we're going to see what Jesus defines as true greatness. What does it mean to rule and to reign? Jesus is the king. He said when he stepped on the scene in the very beginning of the book of Mark, the kingdom of God has come near. The king is here and I've come to rule. What does that look like here? So here's the main idea. If you're saying, God, why do you have me here this morning? Here's why God brought you here this morning to understand this truth. Don't focus on your earthly greatness, but focus on your new earthly greatness. We live in the old earth now. When Christ comes again, there will be a new earth. And we will reign with him there. So don't focus on your earthly greatness here in this cursed, sinful world. Focus on your new earthly greatness. And Jesus gives us three ways to help us focus on this greatness. Okay? Here's number one. Focus on, the, on Jesus' demonstration of true greatness. Number two, focus on Jesus' definition of true greatness. And number three, focus on Jesus' deliverance of true greatness. Okay? His demonstration of true greatness, his definition of true greatness, and then his deliverance of true greatness. Let's look at the first one here. Focus on Jesus' demonstration of true greatness. Look at verses 32 to 34, starting in 32. They were on the road or on the way. They're on the way to where? Jerusalem. And what is Jesus going to do in Jerusalem? He's going to die. So, Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus is not reluctantly walking behind them, trembling, you know, you know, um, shaking his hands in fear. Where is he as they walk? He's out in front. They can't slow him down from getting to Jerusalem. He's biting at the bit to get to Jerusalem. He's going to die in Jerusalem. So what's their reaction? They know there's opposition to Jesus. They know people want to kill Jesus. They know there are plots out there against him. They know he has powerful enemies. So what are they thinking as Jesus is walking ahead of them to Jerusalem? Look at verse 32. The disciples were what? Astonished. And then those who were following were afraid. So there's some of them, the disciples astonished, the apostles are astonished. Other disciples who are following Christ as well are afraid. Why are they shocked? Because Jesus is going on his way to Jerusalem to die and they know it. It's dangerous, so it is shocking that he actually wants to go there. Isn't that shocking? It's almost suicidal. Maybe you could even call it suicidal in a sense. He knows they want to kill him, and he's rushing to get there. That's shocking. That's astonishing to them. Is he really going to Jerusalem? Is he really walking that fast? What is he doing? So there's astonishment and shock, but there's also fear. Why is there fear? In John 11, one of the disciples there, I think it's James or Thomas, it's Thomas there in John 11, says, you know what? He's going to Jerusalem. We might as well go there and die with him. 
In other words, if we follow Jesus as his followers and they're going to kill him, they might also kill us. We're not only, not only are we going to, are we scared that he's going to die, we're scared for our own safety as we follow him in this brisk power walk to Jerusalem. So there's fear. So you got astonishment from the twelve, you got fear from the rest, and what do you have from Jesus? Resolve. Determination. I'm on my way there. And he lays it out for us. So he sees that they're afraid. So taking the twelve aside in verse 32, again, the third time, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. This by far is his most detailed prediction of his death out of the three. Verse 33, listen, followers, listen, twelve. We are going up to Jerusalem, like I told you two times before. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will do what? Condemn him to death. They'll sentence him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, because as a Jew in Jerusalem, you cannot execute legally. So they'll hand him over to the Roman Gentiles, and they will do what? In 34, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, 39 lashes, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. So they're going to make fun of him. They'll put a robe on him. They'll pretend he's the king. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him with a, with a whip that's, you know, it's a long whip and it has animal claws and nails at, all over, like glued to the whip. And so as you whip the man's back and you pull the whip back, it's also pulling off flesh. And so your back would just be exposed raw, with just open wounds all over. And so he'll be flogged and then they'll kill him. He's going to die. And after three days, he's going to what? He's going to rise. They always miss that part. But that's what he says. Now this is a allusion to some verses in the Old Testament. But I want to look at one in particular. Isaiah chapter 50. Turn back in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 50. If you can. If you can't, don't worry. You can just listen. But Isaiah chapter 50. Okay? We're going to look at one passage here for this first point on Jesus' demonstration of true greatness. Isaiah chapter 50, verse, verse 6, says this. This is Isaiah speaking, or the servant that Isaiah is speaking of, is saying in Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who beat me. So there's the whipping, the scourging. My cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. So they're going to spit on my face. Does that sound like what Jesus is talking about? Here's the servant of the Lord who's going to be serving, and yet he's going to be spat on. He's going to have his back beaten. He's going to have his cheeks uh, his cheeks, and people tearing out his beard and torturing him. The servant of the Lord. This is written 700 years before Jesus came. Now this servant, if you go back to verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the what? The tongue of those who are instructed. In other words, he's given me a mouth to speak truth, to teach. To know how to sustain the weary with a word. So this servant of the Lord who's going to suffer is also a teacher. He has God's word. He gives God's word to God's people. He gives God's word to others who are supposed to be God's people. He gets persecuted for that word from some. And his actual followers receive the word. So here's what Jesus is saying as he's giving the prediction to his disciples. Fast forward 700 years from Isaiah. There he is with his disciples on the road to Jerusalem. And he's saying, listen, 
I'm the servant of the Lord who's going to die. I'm going to be spat on. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be whipped. And I am the teacher who has come to bring God's word to God's people in their exile in the midst of opposition. And I will suffer just like the servant of the Lord was supposed to suffer in Isaiah chapter 50. So, because I'm the teacher, what do you need to do as disciples, as learners? Receive my what? My word, my teaching, right? I am the sufferer who is the teacher. So receive my teaching as the servant of the Lord. This is important because the disciples don't get this, as we're going to see in the next point. When Jesus defines greatness, the disciples don't understand what the servant of the Lord means. They don't understand what it means to receive his teaching. But Jesus gets it. He's on a mission. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knew why he came. He's coming to fulfill Isaiah chapter 50 and 53 and the servant of the Lord passages. He has come to do the will of the one who sent him. He's come to die. And he knows that because the scripture has told him that. Okay, so if you're not a Christian, you might say, or if you're not a Christian, here's what I, I have a thought for you here. I wonder what you understand Jesus' death to mean. I had some neighbors over my house this past week who professed to be a certain Christian religion. And I asked them about how to get to heaven, and they said nothing about Jesus' death, even though they're Roman Catholic. They just said stuff about being a good person. I wonder what you think Jesus came to die for. Maybe you think Jesus came to die to show love, right? Sacrificial love. Does Jesus' death really show sacrificial love? It doesn't have to. I think C.S. Lewis is the one who gives this analogy. If someone was running down a pier, covering his ears, and just saying, I love the world, I love the world, I love the world, and he runs off a pier and jumps into the water and says, I'm going to die for the world, and I'm gonna, I love the world, and he jumps into the water and drowns. Is that a picture of love? No, that's closer to a picture of insanity, right? But just because you say you love the world, you just, okay, you died, you say you love the world, that doesn't mean it's love. So if you're not a Christian, I wonder what you think it means that Jesus died. I, what, what do you think that means? We're going to tell you what it means when we get to the last verse here. But I wonder what you think that means. If you're a Christian, here's what you need to know. The center of our lives, the center of our families, the center of our church needs to be the cross of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection is the basis of all we do. That's why we say Happy Lord's Day on Sunday, because we celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. If He didn't die, our lives are meaningless. If He didn't rise from the dead, our lives are meaningless. Christian, do you grasp the meaning of the cross? Jesus wants us to never be bored with the cross. He never wants it to become secondary in our lives. It always must remain front and center to our lives. One teacher has said this, You know how churches lose the gospel? It takes three generations. The first generation has the gospel and they live on the gospel. They preach the gospel all the time. The second generation assumes the gospel, but the church is primarily about secondary things like family, healthy families, politics, social justice, community service, keeping up the church building and the church budget, keeping up denominational programs. Now, none none of these are bad things. But if you say that's the essence of what Christianity is, and you assume the gospel, you've already put the gospel, which is the center, on the periphery. That's the second generation. 
Now, if you raise kids in a church like that, you know what happens to that third generation? They lose the gospel. And when you ask one of those children of that third generation, what is Christianity? To them, Christianity is having a healthy family or politics or being a Christian means keeping up the church building and budgets or being a Christian means social justice or community service. They define Christianity by the secondary things and they don't even know the gospel. The cross must remain central in preaching and in teaching and in our lives and in this church. You assume the gospel, the next generation will lose the gospel. Don't assume the church and the people know the gospel. Keep preaching it, keep wanting it, keep expecting it from this pulpit. That's the first thing. Focus on Jesus' demonstration of true greatness. Now, this is maybe the heart of the passage in terms of application. Focus on Jesus' definition of true greatness. Look at verse 30. Go back to Mark chapter 10. Look at verse 35. So here's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They approach Jesus in verse 35, and they say, Teacher, we want some, you to do something for us if we ask you. Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 36. Jesus is so nice. He's not angry at them. He's not frustrated. What do you want me to do for you guys? 37. Allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. Wow. What a request. We want you to do whatever you want. Whatever we want. Just Can you sign this blank check and then we'll fill in the rest? Well, what do you want me to sign it for? Well, we want you to give us the two most, the highest honored spots in your glory, in your kingdom. James and John are quite ambitious here, aren't they? Not only that, they go one step further. In Matthew 20, Matthew tells us that they get their mother to ask Jesus. Mom, go ask Jesus this. We'll be right behind you. This is lowball, right? I mean, this is dirt. This is pulling out all the stops to get the two most honored spots in Jesus' kingdom and in his glory, the right and the left. We want those spots. Mom, come with us. Come on, Mom, ask Jesus. He won't turn away. He won't turn you away, and then we'll be right behind you, and we'll all ask together as a family. We've been serving him for these three years. He owes us something. Maybe the two highest honored spots in the kingdom are what he owes us. And so there they go with this audacious request. Jesus patiently engages them, and then he uses it to teach them. So does Jesus say yes or no? Verse 38. Here's Jesus' response. Look at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, or to be baptized with a baptism I am baptized with? Now what does that mean? Are you able to drink the cup I drink or get baptized with the baptism I get baptized with? What is that cup? Remember Jesus praying in the garden? We have a little picture of it. We have a picture of it right there in that um, stained glass. Jesus praying in the garden. Let this what? Cup be passed from me. What is this cup? In Isaiah 51, 17, just listen, I'll read it. Isaiah 51, 17 says this. Wake yourself, wake yourself up. Stand up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk the cup of his wrath. From the fury of the hand of Yahweh. Jeremiah 25 verse 15 says this. 15 and 16. This is what Yahweh the God of Israel said to me. Take this cup of the wine of wrath. From my hand. And make all the nations that I am sending you to. Drink from it. They will drink. Stagger. And go out of their minds. Because of the sword. I am sending among them. This cup. Is a cup of God's. Wrath, God's judgment, God's 
condemnation for sin. The righteous, holy, pure fury and judgment of God poured out to the exact just degree for every single sin. That's the cup Jesus is about to drink. And he says to James and John, you guys ready to drink that cup? But not just the cup that I drank, but also the what? The baptism I am baptized with. Now, we're good Baptists here. What does the word baptist, baptize mean? Immerse. So baptism would be immersion. So let's just change the analogy a little bit. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be immersed in the immersion that I am immersed with? Okay, what is this immersion? What is this baptism? Well, let me read to you just some verses from the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 22, 5 says this. The waves of death, this is David talking, the waves of death engulfed me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. Waves of death. Psalm 69, also David says here in verse 2, I have sunk deep in the mud. There is no footing. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary from my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Verse 15 of Psalm 69. Don't let the flood water sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Don't let the pit, which is a symbol of death, close its mouth over me. Jonah 2.3. Remember Jonah when he was thrown into the water overboard? You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. This is immersion into death. And the wages of sin is death. Again, it's another way of talking about the judgment of God. Are you ready, James and John? You want to have the two honored spots? Are you ready to drink the cup of God's wrath for sins? The full wrath of God. Not just the little, oh, I learned my lesson. No, wrath of God, judgment. Are you ready to be immersed into the death that is the wages for sins? Are you ready? What do they say in verse 39? We can do it. I got it. I got this. I got this, Jesus. Cup? Yeah, I, I could drink a cup. Just a little cup. No problem. Immersion. I could, I could be baptized too. We are baptizing people all day. John the Baptist baptized me. I could do the baptism. I got this, Lord. Give us the spots. They have no idea what they're talking about, right? They have no idea what they're talking about when it talks about when we're speaking of the condemnation of God. And so what does Jesus say? Surprisingly, in verse 39, he says, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism, baptism I'm baptized with. I'll answer what that means at the end of verse 44. But verse 40, let's pick up verse 40. It says this, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those it has been prepared for. So what's Jesus' answer? Do you get the left and right or no? No. It's for who? It's for those it's been prepared for and who gets to choose that? God the Father, right? Not Jesus, not God the Son, not Jesus. The Father chooses who sits on the left and right. Not me. You're asking the wrong person of the Godhead, Jesus might have said to them, though they would have not known what that meant at the time. Yeah, you're asking the wrong person. I don't determine it. The Father determines it, not the Son. And guess what, guys? Your ultimate reward is not the big shot spots. Once you understand who I am, and once you're united to me, you'll understand what true reward is. It's not these two spots that you think. Now look at verse 41. So James and John, would you say James and John are commendable or despicable 
in this regard, for this request. Despicable, right? I mean, they're not righteous. You can understand the reason for it, but they're pretty self selfish right now, right? They're self-exalting. Now look at verse 41. What was the response of the other disciples, the other ten? Do you think the other ten were saying, oh, well, you know what? When they heard about it, they're like, you know what? James and John are the best ones. We support and endorse James and John. Is that what they said? Look at verse 41. When the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be what? Displeased. And a stronger translation would be indignant. They were angry with James and John. And they weren't angry because James and John were being selfish. It's because they wanted to be king. James and John wanted their own kingdom. And they were stepping on whose kingdom? Their kingdom. So it wasn't a holy, righteous anger. I'm zealous for the glory of God. How dare you guys be little God? No, it wasn't about the glory of God that they were upset. They were upset for their own glory. Wait, you want those spots? That's my spot. Just like kids, right? Kids who don't care about toys until another kid comes. Then they want that toy and it's their toy and it's mine, right? That's how they were. Oh, you're asking for that spot? No, that's, that's my spot. And so they were just as selfish as the other two. Remember, what was Jesus' role in Isaiah 50? The servant of the Lord who's going to get whipped and his beard plucked out and spit on. He's the teacher, right? Receive his teaching. Does it seem like they get their teaching here as they're fighting about who's the greatest? You, you, You understand this as parents and grandparents, right? And if you've been a teacher. How many times do I have to tell you, right? You guys just, we've been, I've been with you for three years. And you don't get it. You're still pursuing your own greatness. They don't get it. And so, since they don't get it, Jesus has to define it for them in verse 42. So he calls them all together. Okay, guys, stop fighting. Let's come together, verse 42. He calls them over and says to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They dominate them. And their men of high position exercise power over them. So the world, what do they do? The world is cutthroat, right? They use their power to step on people. They use their power to use people for their greater benefit, right? In other words, they don't use their power to serve. They use their power to get their way, to get their preference, to get their selfish, self-exalting plans and desires and ambitions. That's the earthly definition of greatness. And you know what? If this world was all there is to live for, that makes more sense, right? Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We're all going to die once, once, you know, YOLO, you only live once. You might as well just step on as many people as you can and get as much as you can because you get the most toys, and he who dies with the most toys wins, they say. So I'm going to use people and use my influence and use my authority to get my way. That's the way the world works. What does Jesus say in verse 43? Here's Jesus redefining greatness. But it must not be so among you. It must not be like that among you. How should we be? On the contrary, whoever wants to become great, does Jesus want you to be great? Yes. Pursue greatness. Whoever wants to become great must become what? Verse 43. Become your servant. And James and John didn't just want to be great. They wanted to be the first place. First and second place. If you want to be first among all, verse 44, what does verse 44 say? If you want to be first among all, you must be what? Slave of all. You want to be first among the group? Be a slave of everyone in the group. Be the lowest. Or to go back to verse 31, the first, um, many who are first will be last and the last first. You want to be first? Be the last. 
You want to be great? Serve. You want to be the greatest? The first? Be slave of all. That's true greatness. So if you're going to rule this world the way Christ tells you to rule this world and become great, then you must serve. That's Jesus' definition. So focus on Jesus' definition of greatness. Now let's go back to verse 39 because this puzzled me in my study. And I want, it, I want to unhang it for you. Jesus said they're going to drink the cup and get baptized. Does that mean that they're going to die for sins and take the wrath of God? Romans 8.1 says what? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you get zero drops from the cup of wrath. If you're in Christ Jesus, you do not die for your sins in judgment. You don't. So what does it mean that James and John are going to drink this cup of wrath if they're not going to take any wrath? What does it mean they'll get baptized in this death for sins if, they are, if there's no condemnation for their sins? It doesn't mean they're going to atone for sins. It doesn't mean they're going to face God's judgment on their own for sins. Here's what it means. Romans 6 says that when, we, when, when Christ died, we were baptized with Christ into his death. We're united to Jesus. So guess what? When Jesus died on the cross, guess who else died? We died. James and John would die. And when Christ rose from the dead, guess who rises with Christ? We rise with Christ. And so yes, you will drink the cup. Because you're united to Christ who drinks the cup. You're united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. You know when we do baptism back here, when you get the picture of them being plunged underwater, we cheer, and we should because we're happy to get baptized, but picture them being plunged under and drowning. That's what it's supposed to be the picture of, is you're immersed into death underwater where you can't breathe. You die there with Christ. And then you get up and you rise with Christ. And so James and John would drink the cup because they're united to Christ, but it's more than just being united to Christ as a Christian because John 8:34 Jesus said if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you're united to me in my death and resurrection for you, then guess what else? You're going to bear your cross and you're going to suffer in following me. And James and John would suffer, wouldn't they? James was the first apostle of the 12 to die. For Christ in Acts chapter 12. He died for Christ. Look up Acts 12, 2 for homework if you want. He died for Christ. John in Revelation 1, 9 was exiled to the island of Patmos to die there and rot away for Christ. Would they suffer for Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. And if you follow Jesus, will you suffer for Jesus too? Yeah. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If the world hated me, Jesus said, the world will also hate you. Don't be surprised. If you're going to follow me, you will drink a cup. You will suffer for my name. And in your suffering, you'll suffer for the good of others. Tonight, we're going to pray for the family of Samson Nafunyeku, who was murdered for his faith in Uganda. I'll read you the story here. An evangelist in eastern Uganda was murdered by Islamists after he participated in a series of debates with Islamic scholars. Samson Nafunyeku, 60 years old, had served his church as a lay leader for more than 30 years and was known for his bold witness for Christ. According to his son, he had received many threats and endured repeated attacks from Muslims over the past 10 years. Okay, stop there for a second. 
You're receiving threats for 10 years. Why do you not stop? Why don't you give up? Because you decided to take up your cross and what? Follow Christ. You're going to drink the cup. You're going to be immersed in his death. So he doesn't stop after 10 years. So Samson was found badly injured August 20. What is that? Four months ago? Three months ago? August 20 with strangulation marks as well as wounds to his head, leg, and foot. He died at the hospital three days later. He is survived by his wife, sons, and grandchildren. His widow and children are still in shock, a voice of the martyr's martyr, uh, worker said. But they are trusting that their God is able to take care of them. They embrace suffering. Because that's what it means when you follow Jesus. You don't pout that you get trials. You embrace suffering. You take up your cross. You drink the cup of following Christ. You get baptized with it. So what does this mean for us as Christians to serve sacrificially? If we're going to be servants of all, when you serve others, guess what they're going to do to you? They're going to step on you. You serve non-Christian neighbors, they're going to step on you. You serve Christian brothers and sisters, they're going to step on you. And guess what? Take it. That's what true greatness is. We're servants to all. We're slaves of all. We're pursuing true greatness. So Christian, application, recognize true greatness around you and pursue it. If you are a child or a teen, look at your parents and tell your parents, if you can with sincerity, if not, pray that God gives you sincerity, and then say this to your parents, thank you for the way you serve me as a child in your home. Thank you for serving me. If you're a teenager, think about what your parents have done to sacrifice for you and thank them for serving. Recognize true greatness. There's, you know, we have, in our church there's true greatness. Greeters, children's ministry workers, the choir, members meeting up to disciple others, members praying for each other, meeting each other's needs, driving people around, decorating for a baby shower, serving food, work days, welcoming visitors, calling other members who have needs and haven't been around for a while. All of that is service and all of that is a picture of true greatness. That's true greatness. The servant-heartedness of a Christian in our church is true greatness. Just look around and see it. I'm not going to dwell on this more, but um, if you want to, uh, if you're a sports fan, look at David Robinson and Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speeches. Just compare the two. You'll see Michael Jordan, who's considered the greatest of all time, and then you'll see true greatness in David Robinson in just the way they do their Hall of Fame speeches. Michael Jordan's speech is all about himself. David Robinson's speech is all about his family, his coaches, his church, God. It's just all about what others have done. And it's a true servant heart. So don't be like Mike, as the song used to say. You know, Be more like David. Tell your kids to be more like David in regard to um, true greatness. Risk is right. You need to sacrifice yourself to the point of suffering for Christ and his kingdom. So here's my question to you, Christian. What decisions... What decisions do you need to make today to change your orientation from one who is being served for your own comfort and preference to one who is serving for the eternal good of others? Be specific. What do you today, God's having you listen to this message right now, what do you today need to sacrifice that you're not sacrificing? Maybe you need to move to Bellflower if you don't live in our city to engage neighbors here more for the gospel. Maybe you need to invite a church member to have a meal with you. Maybe a member you've never had a meal with. Maybe you need to boldly bring up the gospel to a friend who's not a Christian. 
Maybe you need to call a Christian or a non-Christian friend to repent from a particular sin. Maybe you need to ask a personal and hard accountability question from a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe you need to take a clear stand for Jesus or what sin is in our world. What about the church? What does this mean for our church? Question, what will we sacrifice as a church for our neighbors? Don't think about it. Just, what are we going to sacrifice for our visitors? What price are we willing to pay to reach our neighbors in southeast L.A. County? Is that reflected in our budget? Our schedule, our discipleship, our priorities as a church and our conflicts? We'll always have conflict in church because we're all sinners. But how sweet it is to have conflict over what's the best way to reach our neighbors with the gospel. Right? How sweet it would be to have conflict about making disciples and growing Christians. What about other generations in our church? You know what? This church is starting to get more diverse generationally. And guess what? Every generation is going to have to sacrifice something. You hear a baby crying right now. All of us have to sacrifice for that. Right? you got to sacrifice. Younger people who have joined our church, you've, some of you have sacrificed your musical preferences to be here. That's service. Some of the older people were singing hymns you don't know or hymns you don't like. Guess what? Sacrifice. That's what service is. No one's going to get their church their way, all of us, even me. I'm the pastor. It's not the way, it's not the way I'd like it all, all the way around. We all have to sacrifice because it's not about us. It's about serving each other and serving the lost with the gospel. So what do we need to do to sacrifice as a church to, to be a servant church? If you're not a Christian, you might be turned off by that idea of serving. You're saying, okay, PJ, that's exactly why I don't want to be a Christian, because I don't want to be a servant. Well, guess what? Everyone's a servant of something. You might not be serving Christ and serving the lost with the love of God, but you might be serving your paycheck, serving your employer, serving your family member, serving your friend, serving your health. That's why you're so crazy about healthy food or, or physical fitness. Or you might be serving whatever you live for is what you serve. So you can't avoid being a servant. The only question is, do you have the right master? Right? Okay, now let's close with this last verse and this last question. Why should you focus on serving? Why should you focus on Jesus' definition of greatness? Why should you actually sacrifice yourself and your comforts to serve in this way? Why? Look at verse 45. This is the most important verse in the whole passage. Verse 45. Why should you be a slave of all? For even the Son of Man... Did not come to be what? He didn't come to be served, but to do what? To serve and give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. Remember in in Isaiah, he is the servant of the Lord. He has come to serve. Now, son of man in Daniel 7 is referring to the son of man who has authority. God gives the son of man the, the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is calling himself here, the son of man who has the kingdom authority. But if you read on in Daniel 7, the people of God are the ones who suffer before they get the kingdom. And if the people of God are going to suffer for the kingdom, so is their representative, the son of man. So Jesus is saying, hey, in Daniel 7, yes, I'm the son of man. Yes, I'm the king. Yes, James and John, you're right. I will have a kingdom. I will have spots of glory. You're right. But there has to, have su- there has to come suffering first, before the glory. It's a cross before the crown. So I didn't come to be served, but to serve. He practices what he preaches. He's telling the twelve, be servants, be slaves, because I came to serve and be a slave. But it's not just any typical service. We have many servants in this church that we should applaud. But Jesus is not just the servant you applaud. 
Why? He not only came to serve, but to give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. What does that mean? Isaiah 53, 12 says this. I will give him the many, because he gave his life as a ransom for many. I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Why does Jesus save us? Why does he get many? Because he became a transgressor, or he, he bore the sins. He, he, he wasn't a sinner himself. He bore the sins of people, and he suffered for their sins. What is the penalty of, of sin again? Death. death, right? The cup of wrath, the baptism of, of death, is poured out because of sins. Here's why Jesus died on the cross. Okay, non-Christian, here's why you need to understand Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross because God was pouring out his wrath and anger his righteous judgment and condemnation on Jesus on the cross. Jesus took the wrath of God for sinners. That's why he died on the cross. Because Jesus, because God the Father is angry and righteous and holy in his justice, and he will not let sin go unpunished. So if you're not a Christian, you might say, whoa, that's why I don't want to be a Christian. I don't believe in an angry God. Isn't God a God of love? I mean, does, can't God just forgive us of our sins? Why does there need to be anger and wrath? That's so primitive. These are primitive, archaic, ancient religions that are outdated, PJ. I don't believe in that. Well, let me respond briefly with two things. On the cross, God does not demand our blood, but offers his own. So first, all forgiveness of any deep wrong or injustice entails suffering on the forgiver's part. So if someone wrongs you, let's say I let you borrow my cell phone to make a call, and then you throw it against the wall and break it, right? And let's say I don't have an iPhone, but let's say it's one of those five or six hundred dollar—I don't know how much they cost these days—six hundred dollar iPhone. You break it against the wall. Can I forgive you? I can, right? Do I have the right to forgive you? But what happens to the six hundred dollar bill? Who has to foot the bill? If I forgive you, I do, right? Or I could choose to not forgive you and make you do what? You pay it. But guess what? Forgiveness has a cost, right? Someone has to pay the $600. If I say, well, forget, I'm not going to have a phone anymore. I'm still losing $600. To forgive implies cost. Ransom. You can't have God just forgive without ransom, without cost. Someone has to pay if forgiveness will be granted. And here's the good news. Jesus pays for our sins. We don't have to pay for it. Jesus pays for it. He dies on the cross for our sins. So if you're not a Christian, here's the invitation to you. You're a sinner and God is holy. And God is saying, trust in Jesus Christ and repent from your sins. And you will be forgiven of your sins. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to pay for your own sins. You don't have to be condemned for all the wrongdoings that all of us are guilty of. And that you're guilty of. You don't have to pay. But guess what? If you reject Christ, you will pay. But you don't have to. Christ died as a ransom for many. He offers his hands of forgiveness right now. If you will come to Christ and turn from your sins, you can be forgiven today. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. God's anger will be satisfied on his son so that he will only show you love. And no wrath. No condemnation. You need to have childlike trust and trust in Christ. And when you do that, when you get that, it propels you 
to service. So this third point was focus on Jesus' deliverance of true greatness. He delivers true greatness for us in two ways. He delivers us by dying for us, and then he delivers us into true greatness. Why do you have Christians who are willing to suffer so bad, like this man who suffered 10 years of threats and then died for the gospel? Why would he do that? You know why? Because Christ died for his sins and he saved. That's why he did it. When you get the gospel, you have a servant heart. When you don't get the gospel, you're still demanding. And you demand others to serve you. So if you grasp the gospel, it propels you and empowers you to serve others. So did James, let's close with this. Did James and John get their request? No. Was it good that they didn't get their request or were they cheated? Were they cheated or did they get more than they bargained for? They got more. And guess what? Even if James and John don't get the right spots, do they get more than they ever asked for? Yes. You know why? They wanted these two spots with their earthly mindset of greatness. But guess what God gives them more? He gives them more. You know what's better than sitting at the right and left of Jesus? Having Jesus. Right? You know what's better? Having God in all of his joy loving you and and blessing you and bringing you into the new earth to reign with him. And when you get that, you're the richest person in the world. Regardless of whether you get first or fifth place or five millionth place, I don't care. Let's just rejoice that our names are written in the book of... In the book of life, right? Praise God that he determines where we have to go. We don't have to compete with each other to get in front of each other. We could just compete to be servants and slaves, knowing that we get God himself. How kind of God to take sinners and make us servants and give us himself. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your service to us. You're the king and yet you serve us. The servant king. What an amazing truth. God, would you help us to be servants? Would you help us to die to ourselves? Would you help us to be so overwhelmed with the greatness of your love and the greatness of the sacrifice, the ransom, the cup, the baptism? Help us to be so overwhelmed and overjoyed by the cross that it compels us to faith and gladness and service. God, increase the slavery in our church for your good and for the glory of your name and the good of others. May we we go deeper into service. May May we embrace more suffering and hardship and opposition that we might serve others and glorify your great name and the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.